attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I use every eighth episode of this show to take a look back at Smallville. Now, originally, the eighth episode was for talking about Star Wars, but in the first place, that, that seemed a little too similar to what the Two True Freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show, and in the second place, As it happens, I ended up having a little bit less to say about Star Wars than I originally thought. Hey, who knew, right? So, I switched things up just a little bit and decided to use my eighth episodes to talk about Smallville. And the reason for that is because I believe that Smallville was criminally underrated by most fans. Now, that's changed a lot in recent years. And partly that's because Smallville truly has aged well. And partly it's because Smallville just isn't the most imperative thing for Superman fans these days. But for a lot of years there, Smallville was frequently bashed on for flaws and shortcomings it doesn't even have. So even though I half-assed defended Smallville in the very first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I realized that I could use every eighth episode to sort of go in-depth about Smallville and just really put the show under the microscope. Now, the first season of Smallville is pretty uneven, as a lot of you know. A lot of the episodes were kinda formulaic, and even the ones that weren't just didn't have the same firepower to them that episodes from subsequent seasons would have. But one really striking thing about the first season is that from literally day one, we get a very good insight into Clark Kent. Now, no, he's not the high-flying, cape-wearing superhero just yet, but at the same time, we saw over and over again that Clark's natural instinct was to use his powers to help others rather than help himself. This is something that Smallville rarely gets credit for, but truth is, Jonathan and Martha didn't have to coax their son into being a hero. He made that decision all by himself. What Jonathan and Martha did was slow him down a little bit and keep him on a kind of short leash, especially at first. The second season of the show followed Clark as he made one screw up after another. Whether it was by luck or by circumstance, Clark made all the right choices in the first season of Smallville, but Starting in the second season, just about every major decision that Clark made 
blew up in his face. Sometimes the consequences of his poor judgment were small. Other times the consequences were huge, but Clark fucked up on a pretty regular basis back in the second season. And so, because of that, it really wasn't a major leap in logic that Clark could say, you know, just fuck it and leave Smallville at the end of the second season. I mean, so much bullshit had worked against him over the last year that, you know what? Kind of made sense. The Mighty Season 3 showed Clark using overall better judgment, but frequently the outcome was no better that season than it had been in the second season. In the second season, Clark frequently misjudged the situations in which he found he found himself. He underestimated opponents and other stuff. Now, he didn't make those same mistakes in the mighty third season. Instead, what Clark discovered in the mighty season three is that no good deed goes unpunished. In spite of Clark's best efforts and clearest decision-making processes, shit just never went his way. Lana would get smashed by a horse, Lex would undergo shock treatment by Lionel, Jonathan would suffer heart attacks, so on and so forth. Clark was very well aware of his own fallibility in the mighty third season, but what was new was that Clark got a very good look at the fallibility of the people in his life. In the mighty season three, Lana wasn't going to put up with Clark and his bullshit forever, and she made that very clear. The day would come when as an act of self-preservation, if nothing else, she'd say goodbye to him. And as it happens, goodbye to Smallville. Pete internalized a lot of resentment and jealousy of Clark. Clark had Chloe's eye, Clark regularly saved the day, and he even refused to take credit for it. On top of that, Pete lived in perpetual fear that he might someday accidentally reveal Clark's secret to the world. When Agent Loader beat the piss out of Pete in the Mighty Season 3, Pete had finally had enough. He didn't see any alternative except to leave Smallville and cut Clark out of his life forever. And that was for Clark's own good. On top of that, Clark discovered that Lex had been lying to him all this time. He was still maintaining this private research uh, room in the Luther Mansion dedicated to the Kent family in general, and Clark in particular. Clark just about hit the fucking roof because of this. And the reason for that is because this very thing had been a problem between the two of them in the past, but Lex had told Clark that he had terminated the project long ago. Clark learned the hard way that Lex had been lying to him. And the thing is, Lex never even apologized for his actions. So by the end of the Mighty Season 3, Clark had little or no reason to trust just about anybody in his life anymore. So when Jarrell ordered Clark to submit and undergo some sort of fucked up Kryptonian brainwashing, well, Clark really couldn't think of anything in Smallville worth sticking around for anymore. Lana had left for Paris, Lex had been poisoned by Lionel, Chloe's safe house had gotten exploded real good, Jonathan was, un was in some sort of coma, and Clark had been sucked into the cave wall to undergo Kryptonian re-education. And that is pretty much where we left the characters at the end of the Mighty Season 3. But that's not the only thing on the table here. The end of the Mighty Season 3 is also the end of what you might call Smallville Phase 1. 
Phase 1 consists of Season 1 through Mighty 3. Stories during this period were mostly grounded. Now, I don't know if I go so far as to call them realistic, necessarily, but they were... They generally never went too far with the science fairy tale type of stories. That begins changing with Smallville's Phase 2, which begins right here with the dreaded fourth season. For the first time, characters from outside the Superman mythos would be brought into the show. And there would also be more stories concerning magic and other paranormal story points. Now, the tone of the show also changed. Instead of being specifically a teen drama, Smallville would begin to have more, more and more of a sort of conventional soap opera type of, type of vibe to it, beginning with the dreaded fourth season. The drama would envelop all the characters rather than just the kids, and the kids themselves would stop being as childish as they had been back in phase one. So, one might ask, why exactly do I call this the dreaded season four? Well, the answer to that's a very long story, and it's gonna have to wait until the next segment. So, you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to begin the discussion about the dreaded season four, starting with episode one, Crusade, after these messages. Trick your friends, scare the shit out of your relatives, or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil. Magnus used tombstones. Perfect for people with names such as John Smith, Billy Bob Cletus Sideburn, Jimmy Hoffa, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joseph Stalin, and dozens more. Magnus used tombstones. The best used tombstones this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. Hi, this is Erica Durans. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now. So, episode one, Crusade. We come to it at last. The dreaded season four. Had to happen eventually, I guess. Look, in case it's not been made clear yet, and I don't know how you could have missed the point by now, but I felt absolutely fucking betrayed 
by Smallville's dreaded fourth season. Part of that was how awesome The Mighty Season 3 was. I freely admit it. I thought The Mighty Season 3 set a standard which future seasons could be expected to either meet or exceed. But honestly, a good... Uh, a great big part of my discontent here is that the dreaded season four doesn't meet that standard. Not even close. But the other bigger part is that the dreaded fourth season sucks by just about any standard. To be fair, though, what I didn't understand at the time was that season three had a lot of good luck going uh, behind it, while the dreaded season four had mostly bad luck but in my mind that didn't and doesn't mitigate a lot of the inexcusable number of flaws and bad ideas that the dreaded season four has but all in good time all in good time for now i have to kind of sing the praises of crusade the dreaded fourth season premiere from a logistical standpoint, the amount of development and other work that went into Crusade is just about on par with what you'd invest in a pilot episode. In fact, in a strange kind of way, you could half-ass view Crusade as Smallville's second pilot. Crusade has to set up a new context for all of the characters, introduce plots and subplots for the rest of the season, establish a new tone for the series going forward, and oh yeah, introduce two major new characters. Now, The Mighty Season 3 got fairly dark at certain points. And so before Crusade aired, Al Goff and Miles Miller made it clear that they wanted Clark's senior year to be an overall brighter, more fun time in his life. And I think they mostly succeeded there. Going from memory, the bodies piled up pretty quickly in Season 3, but as I remembered, the dreaded Season 4 had a fairly modest body count. And two of those deaths were brought on by circumstance rather than design, but I'll get into that later. Now, this is the thing that I need you to remember. I'm going to emphasize this. I remembered the dreaded Season 4 having a lower body count than the mighty Season 3. But that's not actually what happened. Nope. More people die during the dreaded fourth season than the mighty third season. Your memory can play tricks on you sometimes, though, which is why you have to check out the official numbers. My point, though, is that I remembered the dreaded fourth season having a lighter tone and fewer dead bodies. That should tell you something about how successful Goff and Miller were about avoiding all the darkness and stuff. Another thing, though, is that I've just got really fond and positive memories of the era in which Crusade premiered. When Covenant from The Mighty Season 3 aired, I lived with my parents. Which, yeah, sucked. But that was the hand that I'd been dealt. I'd watched every episode of Smallville starting with Rosetta back in Season 2, going all the way right on through to Covenant in The Mighty Third Season. But during the summer of 2004, I moved into my own place. And it was a dump, I won't lie, but you know what? By God, it was my dump. No parents, no roommates, 
No nothing. It was all mine. It was a 1,000 square foot, one bedroom townhouse. Now, admittedly, it was in a not so great part of town, but on the other hand, it wasn't exactly Compton either. But anyway, it was my place, right? It was a sort of loft kind of thing. The entire second floor of the joint was my bedroom. I dug the place, and for some reason, I looked back really fondly at that apartment. And I don't even know why, because it was a miserable shithole, but since I lived completely by myself, there was no real possibility to get little stuff, like cable TV. Which is fine, I mean, I've never really watched a whole lot of TV in the first place, so not having cable TV isn't really all that big a deal. Except for Smallville and a few other shows, that is. Now, watching that shit when I lived with my parents was easy because they had cable TV. But since I didn't, I found myself in kind of a pickle. See, I'd not bothered downloading episodes of Smallville since, oh, maybe 2002 or around there. And back then, peer-to-peer file-sharing networks were the big thing. Stuff like LimeWire, Nutella, Grokster, and other things. But... It took ages for Smallville, or really any TV show, to show up on peer-to-peer networks. It would take months, and basically I didn't want to wait months to watch Crusade. That's when my neighbor took an active hand. He showed me how to use BitTorrent, you know, how the client works and all that stuff, and and honestly, it is pretty simple. And I'd heard of BitTorrent before, I just, I'd never gotten around to figuring it out. So, my neighbor, Uh, He rigged up his network to his fucking giant-sized TV so as we could watch Crusade together. Now, he wasn't big on Smallville, but at the same time, he's one of those guys who just doesn't care what he watches on TV either. He just... I tell you, this guy, he's... I could make an episode just out of this wacky neighbor I used to have. He's a weird dude. He was nice, don't get me wrong, but one hell of a weird dude. And that's how I first saw Crusade. On a giant TV with this mega surround system tearing up the walls and my weirdo former neighbor sitting right beside me. Ah, the old days. Oh, by the way, ages ago, Tom Panarese from Pop Culture Affidavit once posited that most of us never really socialize with our neighbors or anything like that. And this was said in his episode dedicated to the movie Singles, where he basically argued that even Singles, the movie Singles, is a kind of, sort of, idealized vision of what 20-something life is like. In the sense that none of us really talk to our neighbors. And so I guess I never realized how interesting my early 20s must have been because I was friends with race car drivers, members of rock bands, and yes, even my neighbors, like I said before. So, either this type of experience is more common than anybody wants to admit, or else my early to mid-twenties were fucking awesome. Flip a coin on that one. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Like I said, the amount of work and reinvention in Crusade isn't too far off from what you'd have to do with a pilot episode, which is why I kind of view crusade as smallville's second pilot and there's going to be a third pilot before this is all over now i mentioned new characters a second ago the first one's jason teague 
Initially, he was positioned to serve as Lana's boyfriend. And in this role, he's a likable enough character. He ends the season as a villain, though. No question about it. Now, my usual rule is to never spoil ahead. But I'm wiping my ass with that here since I don't care. I just don't care about this season. And neither should you. But anyway, so you got Jason Teague, right? In between his introduction and his becoming a villain, he takes a job at Smallville High School as an assistant football coach. Which is just about when you realize that a teacher is having an affair with a student. Now, it's time for full disclosure here. I hated Lana dating a teacher because I've got a lot of baggage when it comes to teachers fucking students. The majority of my high school experience was filled up with teachers fucking their students, or lacking that, rumors of it. For instance, a male basketball coach was accused of fucking a female student a year ahead of me during my sophomore year. I'm going to spare you the details there because there may still be some legal shit going on there for all I know, but what I can say is that I know for a fact that it's true. It really happened. The coach fucked the student, and because of the unusual circumstances of their little tryst, as far as I know, he's escaped all professional and legal punishment for it. Now, if I could have had it my way, he would have been fired, had his teaching license permanently revoked, and then been tossed in the clink. Partly that's because I'd, I'd heard rumors. Rumors with teeth, you understand, but still just rumors, that he wasn't a first-time offender when it came to student fucking. He'd allegedly fucked at least one other student before this incident. So this is strike two, and this isn't the kind of thing where you should get three strikes. At least if you ask me. But anyway, so that was my sophomore year. During my junior year, a different male teacher was falsely accused falsely accused of having an affair with a female student in my grade as a matter of fact I knew this female student she had no reason to lie even when there was no benefit to her or to anybody else she flat out denied that there was ever anything uh, inappropriate about her relationship with her teacher as a, as a matter of fact it was the total opposite she compared this teacher to the father that she never had. Even a year later, guys, when this stuff was a completely dead issue, she still maintained the teacher's innocence. Even when there was nothing to be gained anymore, this girl was upfront saying that nothing at all happened. Now understand, I could have believed that she would have fucked a teacher. She didn't have a very good reputation. In fact, you might say it was a very shitty reputation. So, when she had nothing to gain, what does it say that she completely denied that anything inappropriate ever went on? But the accusation was made by somebody anyway. Someone else obviously believed the teacher was guilty, and because of that, a good man's reputation was completely ruined. In the process, a good teacher was run out of the business. 
Now understand something. That same year, okay? My junior year in high school. That same fucking year, the girls' soccer coach would wander into the girls' locker room and they were changing clothes. Now people, I went to a very conservative high school in a very conservative town in a very conservative state. Most of these girls all came from very conservative homes. You just, you can't just walk in on them without their clothes on. I mean, words, words fail me when I try to describe what kind of violation that is of those specific girls. But that's what this guy, this asshole, this coach would do on a regular basis. It wasn't something that only happened once or twice by mistake. He did it regularly because the fucking pervert wanted to see naked teenage girls. Now, again, full disclosure, I had conflicts of my own with that asshole teacher that had nothing to do with his soccer team or being inappropriate with teenage girls or anything like that. I freely admit that I am biased against that stupid son of a bitch. I admit it. So don't misunderstand me. Anyhow, in Texas... And I'm not sure how it works out in other states, but in Texas, the way things work is that coaches have to teach actual school subjects. They're not allowed to only be coaches. They must teach a class. Because that's exactly what you want. You want jock douchebags who coach other jock douchebags on how to be jock douchebags trying to explain the impact of the Bolshevik revolution on Russia's economy. Yeah, great fucking idea. That policy probably makes sense to some dipshit in the state capitol, but I've never understood why that policy exists. But, because it does exist, I was a student in this jack-off's history uh, class wherein he and I had numerous conflicts with uh, with one another over the course of my junior year. Anyway. But when I say that the guy was a dick and he deserved exactly what he got, bear in mind that I had friends on the girls' soccer team. Again, none of them had any reason to lie or anything to gain by lying. If certain of them told me that the coach would walk in on them when they were undressed, I believe them. To be fair, the school administrators eventually found out about this shit and forced him to resign. They didn't fire him. Did not fire him. They forced him to resign. Specifically so that he could find a job someplace else. And that's precisely what happened. He got a job at a high school in a fairly nearby town where he was fired after his first year for, say it with me, walking in on the girls' soccer team when they were naked. And they didn't force him to resign at that other school. Nope. He was just fired. Period. End of discussion. So that's that bullshit. Now excuse me while I put this on pause and I'm going to get myself Dr. Pepper here. Yeah. So. My senior year was the creme de la creme, though. This is when shit got completely out of control. A band instructor had an affair with one of his female students, a chick who was in my graduating class. 
it was almost done in the open. That's how bad things were. So, unfortunately for everybody concerned, though, this band instructor's own fucking wife also taught at the same high school. Everybody knew what was going on, and that poor woman had to go to work every day, face her co-workers and deal with her students when we all knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that her jack-off a, 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 of a husband was running around behind her back. She knew it. We knew it. It was an open fucking secret. My understanding is that after we all graduated, the chick in my grade married the band instructor as he divorced his wife by that point. So let's just recap here, shall we? One teacher fucked his student and basically got away with it. Another teacher was a father figure for his student and got absolutely crucified for no reason whatsoever. And as all this was going on, a creepy soccer coach took advantage of his girl students. And probably worst of all, somebody's marriage, life, reputation, and career were completely ruined because her husband fucked a student of his, this chick that, I, uh, that was in my graduating class. Look, if you don't see a problem with any of this, just fucking turn off my podcast and never come back because I don't want you listening to my show. Got it? And this is not to speak of the fact that the principal of my high school was arrested years later for soliciting. Soliciting. Basically, he was hanging around a park in the same town the high school's in. He chatted up an undercover cop, unbeknownst to him. The undercover cop was wearing a wire as part of a sting operation. The pervert principal solicited the cop for sex in exchange for money. The undercover cop had what he needed, and so he arrested the pervert. When the subject of teachers having affairs with students comes up, this is the kind of shit I think of. A lot of people's lives, marriages, careers, and reputations have been completely fucking ruined by this stuff. It's not cool. It's not mature. It's not edgy. It's fucking dangerous. It never ends well, and I've seen a lot of good people be absolutely fucking destroyed by this stuff. Either because the shit's true, or else because they were falsely fucking accused. You want to know how I feel about Jason and Lana dating each other? Well, how would you feel about fictional characters doing this shit if you'd lived through all of this bullshit? To this day, I'm offended that this shit was ever put on the air. The other thing, though, is that in the end, Lex rats Lana and Jason out to the school administrators. Think about that. The villain of the story is the only one who can be counted upon to do the right thing here. It just fucking disgusts me. Anyway, the second new character to be introduced this year was Lois Lane, as played by Erica Durance. Now, I freely admit that I've become a serious Erica Durance fanboy, especially in recent years, but from the get-go, I was on board with Lois visiting Smallville, because at that time, that's all anybody thought it was going to be. Just a four or five episode story arc, and then she'd be gone. Obviously, things went another way. Still, like I said, from the start, I was on board with Erica Durance in the role. In time, 
Well, in time, she's become my favorite live-action Lois Lane, but I was always receptive to, uh, to her and her performance, and the reason for that can be traced back to a publicity photo for Crusade. It's a picture of Clark in the waiting room with Lois while she frantically tries to persuade him to stay in the hospital. Just from that one picture, you could already tell that Clark and Lois had better chemistry with one another than Clark and Lana ever had or ever could have. Just taking another drink off my Dr. Pepper. And, speaking of Lana, up to this point in my Smallville retrospectives, I think I've gone pretty easy on her. All things considered. I mean, she's been an annoying, stuck-up bitch on several occasions, but... I've kept things under control specifically because I knew the dreaded fourth season was coming. And people, the dreaded fourth season is when the damn done broketh. From beginning to end this season, Lana's an angry, spiteful, manipulative, dishonest, mean-spirited, passive-aggressive, cold-hearted bitch. She demands absolute disclosure from everybody in her life and all the while she lies through her teeth and keeps secrets of her own even when lying and keeping secrets doesn't even benefit her don't get me wrong Lana was never a prize on this show but the dreaded four seasons where every horrible thing Lana represents was kicked into fucking overdrive every negative aspect of her character was amplified Every redeeming aspect of her character was ignored, and worst of all, the other, the other characters never questioned Lana or her actions. The assumption that everybody started from was that Lana was absolutely, positively right 100% of the time, which could only mean that everybody else was absolutely, positively 100% wrong. Worse, Disagreeing with the pretty pink princess was justification for her to play these little sick, weird, creepy, passive-aggressive mind games with everybody. And if that didn't work, she reserved the right to curse you out and publish, uh, possibly hit you. There's exactly one moment this season where Lana's written in a naturalistic, understandable, relatable way. It occurred in episode 12, Pariah where Clark brings Alicia to the Talon, and I should add that this is the very same Alicia who tried her level best to kill Lana last season. But Clark brings her to the Talon like nothing happened. Lana gets seriously pissed off about that, and who can blame her? I mean, fuck it, I better get into, I better start talking about everything else or else I'm gonna have a heart attack here. Otherwise, this entire episode is going to be nothing but a dreaded season 4 bash fest, and God help me, there'll be plenty of other episodes for me to piss on the uncountable number of shitty ideas from this season. So I just, I'm going to, another drink off my Dr. Pepper. So anyway, by the time of Crusade, Smallville, as a television production, was a, it was a well-oiled machine. The kinks of the first season had been 
pretty much ironed out, and the writing staff was a fully functional part of the production office. The cast members were intimately familiar with all of their characters, and Al Goff and Miles Miller were feeling a little more ballsy when it came to exploring some of the more science fantasy aspects of the Superman mythos, shall we say. And I guess what I'm saying here is that prior to the dreaded fourth season, Smallville had been a relatively grounded show. Now, don't get me wrong. It had fly, uh, flights of science fantasy here and there, but by and large, it always had at least one, but usually two feet stuck firmly in the real world. The dreaded fourth season is where that began noticeably changing. And from here, things would never go back to how they had been. There are two crucial subplots that form the uh, season arc this time around. First, there's Lana being possessed by the ghost of a witch by the name of Countess Margaret Isabel Thoreau. Goff and Miller explain that the reason for this storyline was to bring Lana more into the mythos than she had been up to this point. That's the only reason this storyline was ever conceived of. Scary as that is. The second issue concerns the Stones of Knowledge, which are three Kryptonian artifacts which combine to create a storehouse of knowledge, the likes of which the Earth has never seen before. So, you better pray the Stones don't fall into the wrong hands. I'll start by saying that Lana's Witch storyline is nothing but pure jump-the-shark silliness. Still, it's a better idea than making her a manhunter, so there's that. Now, that's not an argument in favor of the Witch storyline. It's just me trying to put all this into some type of perspective. This is not the stupidest thing that anybody's ever done with Lana. That's what I'm saying. Oddly enough, though, I don't blame the Witch, that whole Witch thing, for the crazy amount of viewers that Smallville lost this season. Nope. Go back and look at the numbers sometime. Smallville averaged 4.9 million viewers during the uh, during the mighty third season, and 4.4 million per week back in the dreaded fourth season. The problem here is that season two averaged 6.3 million viewers per week, so what the fuck happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. For the mighty season three, American Idol happened, and uh, during the dreaded fourth season, it was Lost, and um, America's Next Top Model. All of those shows struck at Smallville's core demographic. It can't be argued that those shows didn't have a big impact on Smallville's ratings. If you don't think so, you're fucking wrong. Simple as that. Smallville aired on Wednesday nights during the third season and the dreaded fourth season. And for the fifth season, Smallville was moved to Thursday nights. And you'll notice that season five's average increased from 4.4 million viewers, as it was during the dreaded fourth season, to 4.7 million viewers. So forget the revisionist bullshit people try to force on you that audiences rebelled against the witch storyline. As much as I wish that was the truth, it's just not what happened. And people understand, I was rebelling against the witch story. I've never actually met anybody who likes the witch story. 
But you know what? They've got to be out there because the ratings don't lie. As a matter of fact, the episodes this season that center on all that witch stuff, those were the most highly rated of the entire season. It's sick, but there it is. Anyway, so that's the rating stuff. The storyline concerning the Stones of Knowledge is really not what Goff and Miller originally wanted it to be. It's no more complicated than that. This storyline got shafted by two things. First, the Stones of Knowledge storyline was intended to revolve around Christopher Reeve's Virgil Swan character. That was foiled, though, because Reeve unfortunately passed away before he could do any filming for the dreaded fourth season. The second thing that uh, ruined the Stones of Knowledge storyline, Margot Kidder played Bridget Crosby, who was a kind of a surrogate for Dr. Swan. The thinking went that if Reeve couldn't be there to do the job himself, the showrunners could console themselves by using Margot Kidder as a kinda sorta half-ass replacement. That ended up falling apart, though, because Margot Kidder had one of her trademark meltdowns. She shit-talked Goff and Miller to the international media. And then she vowed to never work on Smallville again because she didn't approve of the Virgil Swan character being killed off on the show. But seriously, what the hell were Goff and Miller supposed to do about that? Were they supposed to recast Virgil Swan with a different actor and hope nobody noticed? Anyway, but look, whatever. The theory goes that complications with Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder led to the dreaded season four's, I guess, season-long storyline being restructured so as to put a much bigger emphasis on the whole Isabel the Witch bullshit than anybody originally expected. Now, there were other minor problems, too. Originally, Kyle Gallner was supposed to reprise his role as Bart Allen, later on in the season, but nobody anticipated him being cast in a recurring role on Veronica Mars. Little things like that. So, on the one hand, a lot of the dreaded season four's problems aren't. Are not. Goff and Miller's fault. Right? However, it's really not that simple. I've taken some abuse for hating the dreaded fourth season as much as I do, in spite of, or maybe because of, all the problems I just mentioned, but there are problems with this season that are absolutely Goff and Miller's responsibility. This is the only time in Smallville's entire history where Clark has no confrontation or even really any interaction with this season's big bad. All or most of the dreaded season four's storylines conflicts and resolutions occur independently of Clark. For example, Lana would have been possessed by the witch with or without Clark's intervention. From there, she would have subsequently rid herself of the witch's spirit with or without Clark's intervention. For another example, the Teagues would have been vanquished with or without Clark ever appearing in so much as one episode this entire season. And offhand, I don't think Clark ever even met Genevieve Teague. When storylines can be resolved naturally, with 
out your superhero lead character? That's bad writing. The dreaded season four has a lot of flaws and shortcomings, but not all of them can be excused by saying that Goff and Miller had mostly bad luck this year. Either way you look at it though, when you tally everything together, no matter who deserves the blame for all these problems, the only rational conclusion is that the dreaded fourth season is the year where Smallville sucked. I've been accused in the past of letting my fandom of the show blind me to its flaws. So, my hope is that everything I've said up to this point, along with everything else that I'm going to say about the dreaded fourth season that you haven't heard yet, is going to balance out the ledger a little bit. Still, I'll say this much for the dreaded season four. It begins explaining, or at least hinting at, Jarrell's side of the argument. Not as much as the fifth season would, but beginning with the, the dreaded fourth season, you start seeing the method to Jarrell's madness. His actions make a lot more sense when you understand why he's done the things that he's done. But I'll come back to that later. So, Crusade. Clark flies. Well, no, it's not actually Clark who does the flying. It's, it's Kal-El, his kind of, sort of, maybe Kryptonian half. And the reason for that is because basically Clark's humanity has been fully submerged. And all that's left now is the Kryptonian side. Jarrell's basically brainwashed Clark's humanity right out of him so that he can gather the stones of knowledge from around the globe. Again, it's not until later that we see why Jarrell uses the extreme measures that he does, but the seeds are first planted in Crusade. Now, I should say from the start that none of us knew about that going in. The, an the announcement was made before the show aired that Clark was going to fly in the season premiere, and that's all anybody knew. And at the time, I was ready for it. In all honesty, I never expected Goff and Miller to stick to the no tights, no flights thing. At least not completely. So it made sense to bend at least the no flight thing started in, starting in the dreaded fourth season. Because, I mean, isn't, the, isn't this the season when ratings usually start dropping off? Clark flying in some way or another would be a good little rating stunt to start the season off strong. And obviously they didn't break the rule. Not really. Not completely. And certainly not permanently. It wasn't Clark as we've always known him, up to this point, flying. The showrunners would bend the no-flight rule again in creative ways in future seasons, but let's be real, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Remember Metamorphosis back in the first season? Clark floated in that episode. Remember Rosetta from the second season? It's implied that Clark flew to the Kawaji Caves in his sleep. So, before any of us even saw Crusade, I was okay with the no-flights rule going away, but obviously it didn't. After seeing the final product, though, I was absolutely convinced that Goff and Miller made the exact right choice by showing Kal-El fly. For a lot of years there, Crusade was my gold standard when it came to Superman flying in live action. The flying sequence from Crusade 
absolutely blows the doors off of anything that had come uh, before that. And that's no disrespect to the effects technicians behind the uh, Richard Donner Superman films. It's just, it's just an acknowledgement that technology had improved so much in the intervening 20-something years that there was no comparison between what old movies were capable of versus what a modern TV show could produce. The really sad thing, though, is that Crusade's flying shots are even better than the multi-hundred million dollar Superman Returns. As sad as that is, now. Anyway, it took until Man of Steel for Smallville to finally be dethroned by live-action Superman flying shots. Man of Steel's flying effects are as far, of are as far ahead of Smallville as Smallville was ahead of everything that came before. But even now, Crusade remains a, a really fucking impressive example of what's possible to do with Superman flying sequences when you move away from 1978 era effects tech, uh, technology. More broadly though, Crusade adequately set up the season's primary storylines and mysteries. Now, we can debate amongst ourselves how well conceived some of those ideas were and God knows how well executed they were, but on a technical level, you really can't argue they weren't set up masterfully in Crusade. So, deeper themes and implications. I mean, fuck's sake, part of me wants to say that the dreaded fourth season isn't even worth the effort. And don't get me wrong, I may yet say that very thing, but one thing that at least Crusade shows is that the characters in Smallville are willing to do anything, cross any line, when it comes to family. There are positive and negative manifestations of that. Lois is willing to do whatever it takes to find Chloe. She's convinced Chloe was murdered, and there's virtually no limit to how far she'll go to prove it. Martha's been running the farm all by herself while squeezing in visits to Jonathan as often as she can. Against all odds, she's holding on to the hope that she'll be able to pull her family back together somehow. Lex and Lionel's relationship has only recently turned openly violent. Granted, that technically happened back in Covenant, but the chickens start coming home to roost in Crusade. Before now, Lex and Lionel always had a tense, uneasy, and often hostile relationship, but there was always the bond of blood there. Not anymore. And honestly, to my memory, never again. They may be allies at various points in future seasons, but if they ever had days of being father and son, they're long gone now. Speaking of the Luthers, Lex and Lionel have a pretty interesting scene toward the end of Crusade. Lex assumes that Lionel's responsible somehow for the airborne theft of the crystal from the, uh, from the uh, Luther Corp jet. Now, obviously, we viewers know that Clark's the one that stole it, or Kal-El, really, is the one who, who stole it, but whatevs. What makes this scene interesting, though, is that Lionel's in a prison cell when Lex pays him a visit. Understand, Lionel is the one in prison here. But the camera's focused in such a way that the bars are all blurry and misshapen when Lionel's in the frame. When Lex is in the frame, 
The bars are crystal clear. They are rock solid. The visual suggestion here is that Lionel's only temporarily caged, but his power, his reach, extends beyond any prison cell. Push comes to shove, no matter which one's incarcerated, Lex is the one in prison. That wasn't how things were in the mighty third season. Remember how I spent some time talking about how Lionel was the only one affected by the prison bars during close-ups? That's all switched here. The implication here is that even prison can't contain Lionel. Not for long. Certainly not anymore. Whether he's incarcerated or not, his power extends far outside those prison walls. Something else? The third season played Lionel as the villain, a real monster. The dreaded season four is the beginning of his character rehabilitation, and given how twisted and evil Lionel is, redemption has to come from external forces. Two external forces, to be precise. The first comes later on, during transference, when Lionel and Clark trade bodies for an episode. Such close contact with Clark's soul begins changing Lionel. It begins purifying him. Not completely, but partially. It's enough to somewhat suppress his nastier, more evil tendencies. The second main influence comes in commencement, the season finale. We don't see the results of that, at least not during this season, but Commencement as an episode marks the start of Lionel taking on a very different role in the series from here on out. Now, that shit goes way beyond the dreaded season four, so I'm not going to talk about it too much here. But for now, though, let it be said that these two factors result in a very different Lionel starting in this season. Now, this next part isn't really about deeper themes and implications. Although, maybe it should be. Anyway, whatever, here it is. Crusade marks the beginning of Smallville entering its prime as far as visuals and cinematography are concerned. No, the storylines may not always be up to snuff. And, let's face it, there's really no denying that. But at the same time, you can't argue that Smallville hasn't rounded a corner by the time of Crusade. In Season 1, the visuals were slick and interesting, but... There's no comparison between that and, say, anything from The Sainted Season 7. The Sainted Season 7, in my opinion, is Smallville's aesthetic high point. It's the, sh it's the show's visual zenith. Smallville never looked as good as it did until the Sainted, uh, before The Sainted Season 7. And it had never looked that good again after the Sainted Season 7. The dreaded Season 4 is the beginning of all that. This season is getting close to Smallville's prime, insofar as having movie-quality production value. Everything the show had started doing with lighting, color design, wardrobe, and everything else was beginning to pay off, starting in the dreaded fourth season. Now, like I say, true, Seasons 5, 6, and Sainted 7 are always going to be Smallville's visual prime. And that's really the era that watching Smallville was kind of like watching a comic book. But the dreaded fourth season isn't off by much. It's very close. It's not quite there, but it's getting there. 
So, to put it another way, yeah, Lana's at her most damned annoying in the dreaded season 4, but at the same time, the series in general had never looked this good before, and it'd only get better after this point. Now, this may seem like small potatoes in the grander scheme of things, but I'm trying to find something positive to say here, because there's a time coming, coming very soon in fact, when I'll struggle to find anything positive to say whatsoever. Alright, so I basically talked myself out here. There's, there's more to say about the dreaded fourth season and God have mercy, I'll have an opportunity to say more in the future next time. Next time, I'm a tackle, episode two, gone. Next time. For right now though, I've said my piece about the dreaded season four. <sighs> Who needs a drink? Anyway, so next time I'm gonna try to make up for lost time since I only talked about one episode this time around. I'm going to make up for lost time by discussing Gone, Facade, Devoted, Run, and Transference. But that's next time. Be right back after these messages. to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode, still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com, still every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing. Captain William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality 
at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there if you use this link to go to amazon and then you shop two true freaks gets a cut of what you buy it doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.